We all have unearned aspects of our lives, both privilege and luck and just general blessings of being here present on planet Earth. And to put that at the center instead of this us-them, hyperpolarized, conflicting, really environment that was just everywhere. That was one leg of Pantsuit Politics, Sarah Stewart-Holland, co-creator and co-host of the prolific politics podcast out of Kentucky that has reached hundreds of thousands of listeners with candor, curiosity, and civility. We try really hard to say this is an exercise not to convince everyone to agree with us or even to adopt our style, but to set an expectation for ourselves in terms of what values we bring into our political conversations. And that's Beth Silvers, the other half of this charismatic team. Pantsuit Politics has put out over 500 open-minded discussions at a time when that quality is sorely lacking. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of polarization. And I'm Jillian Youngblood, and I'm so stoked to be talking today with a pair of women who handle all things perilous so artfully. Sarah and Beth are college friends who reunited in their parenting years with a podcasting mission. Six years later, they've covered every major controversy, political, social, cultural, without giving in to the controversy. So let's give trolling, canceling, and stereotyping the day off and learn how these pantsuited politicos infuse discourse with a bit of grace, starting first with Sarah Stewart-Holland. I mean, we really formulated the Grace-Filled Political Conversations as a subtitle to our book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening. And... We were trying to capture the environment we'd built over years at Pantsuit Politics, where we do use the word grace a lot, and in a real purposeful way to describe what we hopefully achieve on a biweekly basis. It is hard with the tenor of political discourse everywhere, but grace is often about giving it when you don't receive it. And so we we try really hard to say this is an exercise not to convince everyone to agree with us or even to adopt our style, but to set an expectation for ourselves in terms of what values we bring into our political conversations and what values we hold around how to conduct those conversations. So, Beth, I'm curious, were there any as you look back, formative influences on either your thinking or in the creation of the show on that basis? Any particular authors, role models that you had in mind as you started the show? You know, for me, it's really the people in my community. An example that I bring up about my political past on the show occasionally is that I grew up on a dairy farm in rural Kentucky. And Al Gore was uh, not popular among the people we knew in agriculture because of changes that he was already rolling out to deal with climate. But the discussion about Al Gore in our households was never about him as a terrible human being who we didn't trust. And it was never even arguing with the objective of caring for the environment. Caring for the environment is a huge part of small family farming. It was more about whether policymakers at a you know 50,000 foot level could understand the impact that those policies would have all across the country in farms of all different sizes. And that is sort of the language that I wanted to bring to the discussion with Sarah and what I felt our opportunity was to just have a, a, a normal conversation about politics instead of trying to be another example of, 
your talking points versus my talking points. Well, let me go all the way in the other direction and say Oprah, <laughs> as far away as you can get from the people in your everyday life, because as much as I wish she was a part of my everyday life, um, she's not. But she was growing up. I watched Oprah every single day from the time the show started until it when it ended in my 20s, which I turned 40 this year. And what I learned, you know, growing up listening to her, which I think is really relevant and drives a lot of what I try to do on the show, is that people have to feel heard. And really that what we are here to do is to connect with one another through listening, through kindness, through relationship, and through conflict, you know? And I think that some of Oprah's fame and power and sort of industry dominance came from the fact that she was willing to lean into hard things. The point being that we are taught to hate each other on the basis of the color of our skins. So do you see yourself any differently than a heroin addict or a cocaine addict? Or This and religion, people can never agree on. <laughs> so you're not just anti-black, you're also anti-gay too. This is a show for every woman who's ever been abused. Well, I keep asking Allison to book Oprah. I don't know what the problem is, but we'll redouble our efforts. <laughs> uh, I love her so much. So... The Guardian had a very complimentary article about your show a few years ago, and they used the phrase left-right conviviality, <laughs> which is very British in a way. Is that still sort of the ethos of the show? Has it changed at all? Have either of you moved around significantly? It is not the ethos of the show anymore. I mean, I hope we keep the conviviality. Yeah. And I hope that people from a wide variety of viewpoints find a place with our community but if you tune in expecting to hear one person on the left, one person on the right, that is not where we are at this point. Um, I was our host from the right when we began. I was never a great representative of the right because I'm not a purist in my politics or anything else. And so that expectation was always taken very literally in a way that I didn't meet well even from the beginning. But I changed my party registration during the Trump era because I just didn't see in the Republican Party the values that made me a Republican initially. I think the party went in a very different direction from sort of uh, local decision making, local problem solving, which is why I was always a Republican. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I mean, our audience are largely independent or unaffiliated voters, and that's an easier thing to be. In my state of New Hampshire, than many states, we have relatively open primaries. We have a huge number of independents. So Beth, did that tempt you at all to be independent or unaffiliated? I would be independent if I lived in New Hampshire. Here in Kentucky, we have closed primaries, and I think primary participation is too important to sit out. And so I changed my registration to be a Democrat so that I could continue to vote in primaries. But I'm also curious, Beth, you know, and I'm an independent, never thought I'd be saying this, but if every sort of moderate, you know, rational kind of science-based thinker leaves the Republican Party, is that a good thing? Are we not left with a more radical, potentially dangerous party? I think I will start with the premise that I think it's really hard to know what moderate means here in 2021. There are so many issues where I think it is, um, where I would consider myself as having not a moderate viewpoint, criminal justice reform, for example. I'm, I'm quite extreme in my views about criminal justice reform, but then I have views that are 
probably extreme on other issues that would be thought of as more to the to the right than that. So I think moderate is a hard word, but I take your point that people who have some malleability, people who are interested in evidence versus sort of um, ideologues, I tried for a while to see my place in the Republican Party, and I just couldn't find it for now. And that's hard. I, I wish that weren't true. We're with special guests today, Beth Silvers, and before her, Sarah Stewart-Holland. They're creators and co-hosts of the long-running podcast, Pantsuit Politics, and they've been profiled by The Atlantic, The New York Times, The Guardian, among other publications. And they've been on such well-known national shows as Morning Joe. And speaking of TV talk shows, you could say that Pantsuit Politics is a bit like The View in audio, but a view not so on high as that big budget show that's taped in Manhattan. Sarah and Beth do both have law degrees. Sarah's worked for major political organizations and Beth for a regional law firm. But they're more firmly rooted in their Kentucky communities and interacting with their listeners not as A-listers, but facilitators on a range of messy topics. Such as COVID and polarization. I mean, I have a vaguely purple location. And I, you know, I hate that I even have to use purple to describe COVID because it doesn't feel like it should be political, but, you know, it is. Immigration. I really dislike immigration programs that are merit-based. This idea that we only look at people as economic engines. Gun violence. From the just the most basic issues of we have too many damn guns to the complex issues, political issues like right-wing extremism and white supremacy and toxic masculinity and all these things. And global warming. We're more comfortable than at any time in the history of humanity. And our comfort is what is preventing us from making real progress. Among many other equally fraught topics handled in a non-fraught way. So let's dig a little deeper into the refreshing yet still informative civility of pantsuit politics, starting with the show's therapeutic value for listeners and hosts. Well, again, we're amazed at the fact that you've done 500 shows. When I think about doing 500 shows, it, you know, I, I love doing shows, but it makes me want to jump off a bridge. So <laughs> I wonder how many times did you have a bridge jumping feeling during that long run uh, and you're still going, or do you just so enjoy doing each one that you could easily do another I think 500? what we do is almost a type of therapy. I mean, we had a listener describe us once as America's political therapist. And so since we are both people who care deeply about the world and are interested in news and politics, it never feels like a chore to sit down and process that with another person. It always feels like it makes sort of my participation in the world easier. No bridge jumping for me. I think the hardest seasons <laughs> of the podcast are when we are in an election season and there is there is that forced dichotomy. And it reminds me that we rarely feel that way. You know, in, in most of our conversation, there's a lot of room. It is not this or that. There are a variety of options. It's about prioritization. It's about trial and error. Uh, but when we're in that forced dichotomy, I think that's hard. And I think it dials up everyone's kind of worst political instincts. All right. So obviously it's hard to remember in great detail all of your shows, 
But is there a personal favorite or two of yours, Beth, that you look back on, maybe you re-listen to? And is there also one or two you'd kind of like to take back? The take back is easy for me. We did um, an example of a debate kind of early on in our podcasting career because we were trying to say what could a presidential debate look like if we wanted to get people thinking afterward. And I think that we accomplished that, but I also just felt icky while we were recording it. We wrote about this in our first book. We've had so many great guests, but for me, the best conversations are when Sarah and I are really digging into something hard. I'm probably most proud of the work that we did around Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings because I think that we were able to talk about how this was about so much more than Brett Kavanaugh. I disagree with your characterization of all conservative justices as people who are interested in chipping away at individual rights for the benefit of corporations. I feel like Brett Kavanaugh is a partisan, and that bothers me. Christine Ford was not the first woman and will not be the last woman to be sitting in a chair like this. I think the reason we don't have a process like that is because this process isn't for us, and it never has been. And I think, you know, Beth stole my answer. I definitely think the Kavanaugh hearing episodes still rank as um, some of my favorite. But I think you see what we did there in other times, and that, and I'm just really proud that we show up in a really raw and vulnerable way for our listeners when the moment is raw and vulnerable. You often emphasize the importance of nuance, and I think there was a quip that was quoted in the Atlantic magazine that you set out to do nuance and the universe gave you Donald Trump. So <laughs> in an age of TikTok, is nuance even more difficult to convey to an audience that you know, really requires kind of pretty extreme viewpoints and entertainment? Well, let me just stick up for TikTok for a second here. I think that there is some incredibly nuanced complexity happening on TikTok. I think some TikTok creators can convey complexity in the an amount of time that seems unfathomable to me. But I think that among our audience, who I feel like I know and understand intimately, there is always a much deeper desire for curiosity and understanding. And I think even beyond our audience, particularly in the face of COVID, that there is a sense that the world as we understood it has changed and that we are going to need to be a little more curious and a little less um instantaneous in our judgments. You know, the one thing that I can bring all my family members of different political persuasions on board with is the idea that social media platforms has, you know, just disintegrated our political debate and that there is more complexity contained within themselves than is portrayed on their social media status or profile pages. It's tricky because I agree with Sarah. I think social media both harms our capacity for nuance and expands it. And it just depends on how you curate your feeds and what you're looking to do on social media. So I never want to be a thumbs up or thumbs down on social media or even cable news, although I'm probably a little bit more thumbs down on cable news in terms of its overall effect, because I think that drive to constantly have something to say leads us to say the worst versions of the things we're thinking sometimes. Yeah, well, I think you have a, a great line in your first book. I think you're wrong, but I'm listening. Something about we Americans changed from you shouldn't talk about politics to you should only talk to people who reinforce your worldview. Is that also going to be a theme in your forthcoming book? 
Yeah, we just turned in our manuscript and we joke in the introduction that if our first book was called, I think you're wrong, but I'm listening, our second book should be called, I still think you're wrong, now what? And so I think that's what we're trying to get at is that sometimes compromise is next to impossible. And we're not going to reach some magic solution where we fixed the issue, right? What we have to ha- develop a um, endurance for, a resiliency in the face of, is conflict. Um, and a multicultural democracy as big as ours. But in our system of government, you know, with the three branches, with two major parties, isn't compromise essential? Didn't the Constitution assume that people could reach compromise? And aren't we in pretty deep water if we can't reach compromise on the tough issues? I mean, I would say, though, that political polarization, when people speak about political polarization, there are not articulating um, societal disagreements about policy. Like, that's not what people are fighting about on Facebook, right? Like, they're not like, well, here's my legislative proposal and here's your legislative proposal. And why can't we just find some, you know, some compromise here, right? Like, when we talk about political polarization in America, Um, We were talking about cultural conflicts and societal conversations and absolutely like legislation has to involve compromises. But those like the intricacies of those compromises that happen in like congressional committees or between the White House and the legislative branch, like that's not what people are fighting about on Facebook. Well, if you could give some advice to our listeners who are mostly independents, they're spread out all over the country. But as you can imagine, they're tend to be more of them in, let's say, purple states that have open primaries. What advice would you give to them about how they can help the political conversation? I think independents play a really important role. Um, For me, a lot of the disagreement that is most fiery right now is a matter of language. I think if we sat down and discussed what the driving forces were behind the disagreement and found some new words, words that didn't just shut people down or indicate like this is my team. And so you can assume everything else about my agenda. We would be in a better place. And I think independents are well positioned to find those new words. I think the role of independents who aren't consumed with politics every second of every day or who don't have, you know, expertise in the latest cultural conflict or news event are needed because we need that perspective where it's not, they're not, you know, passionate about something so they can ask questions that need to be asked or point out holes in the argument or share just a perspective that sometimes gets lost. So no, I definitely think that the role of independence, you know, in a political environment like ours that is bifurcated and winner take all can really not be overestimated. So we're really impressed with how many topics you cover and curious, you know, how much research goes into being prepared to talk for an hour or so on multiple difficult topics. Do you have some researchers helping you? And how do you know when you feel like you know enough to take on a topic? You first, Beth. It's a lot of research. We do it all ourselves. We have experimented with people um, helping us with research. And I just find that I, I don't feel prepared unless I'm doing it myself because the types of questions that I ask and what leads me to a new article or down a new path, I just have to have that process on my own to feel ready to talk to Sarah. And sometimes, I mean, a ton of it is driven by our audience. What are they asking questions about? What are they emailing us about? What are they? What it seems to be a pain point for them, 
And so that will really draw like how much, like what we're taking in and what we're paying attention to as well. Yeah. So Beth, can you think of a message or two that came out of the blue, but ended up spawning a topic or a guest? The message that stands out to me most in terms of community engagement is after we did a series on 9-11, we tried to talk about what happened leading up to 9-11, what happened to that day, and how it changed our government. We had just kind of as an aside in one of our conversations mentioned structural aspects of the Twin Towers in terms of how they were struck and the fallout from it. And the very next day, we heard from someone who was a thermonuclear engineer who had reached out to say, let me tell you more about this. I'm so excited that you mentioned my area of expertise. And it just reminded me that anything we touch on, someone is listening who knows a lot more about that. That was Beth Silvers and before her, Sarah Stewart Holland, creators and co-hosts of the long-running Pantsuit Politics podcast, grace-filled political conversation in our not-so-gracious era. So being from the South myself, I'm going to go out on a magnolia limb and suggest maybe that civility comes in part from their Kentucky upbringing and the importance of civility in their community. A fair point, Jillian, even if a terrible tree pun, so please cypress any more of those. (laughs) I am groaning in the wind over here. Can hardly blame you, but not being from the South and being a huge nerd, I'm going to suggest Sarah and Beth intuitively understand what real dialogue is. And that was explained to us by our previous guest, Dr. Peter Coleman. He's the director of Columbia University's Difficult Conversations Lab. And debate is a type of communication that is really a game and it's about winning an argument. And so I listen carefully to you to weaponize your flaws and your logic and use them against you to win the argument. Dialogue in my field is the opposite. Dialogue is a space where you learn and discover, and you can learn things about your own position and attitudes and where they came from. You can learn things about the other people and why this is important to them. And you learn that these issues are messy and complicated. Which is interesting because, as Beth mentioned, they once held a debate on their show and they hated it. It turns out it really changed the tone and they won't do it again. So less debate and more dialogue in this final part of the interview as we learn about Sarah and Beth's home state of Kentucky and the extent of polarization there. As well as their travels around the country prior to COVID on their Nuanced Nation tour. Um, Yeah, in 2016, I ran for a nonpartisan position on my um, city commission. I won the first time, I lost the second time, and there was a massive increase in polarization and the way people treated city officials. A city official I served with who'd been on the commission for several years spoke pretty frequently about how bad it had gotten because everything became nationalized. You know, I would knock on people's doors for a nonpartisan position and they wanted to talk about Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And so I think that that nationalization of politics has really taken a toll on communities and our community institutions and our um, sort of civic participation at both the local and state level, without a doubt. But we were struck that Kentucky has seemed to expand voting access when many states are working to restrict it. Is that your understanding of that, Bill? 100%. And I think that is completely the result of divided government in our state. I think divided government has gotten us much better results, not just on voting access, but on any number of issues related to COVID-19. 
I am thankful every day that we are led by the people that we are right now. We have a Democratic governor and a Republican secretary of state, and they have worked very cooperatively. It has not been easy, and it has not always been publicly smooth, but they've gotten some very good results on allowing more people to vote safely, reaching um, legislative proposals that will allow for expanded voting in Kentucky. Honestly, some some accomplishments that I did not think were possible in, in our state capital, they've reached by working together more cooperatively. So we're interested in some of the highlights of your Nuance Nation tour, and I believe you may have passed through New Hampshire at that time. I love visiting other state houses. That's one of my favorite things to do when mm-hmm. we're out on the road, just really seeing how differently state government works across the country. I'll tell you, to me, the most interesting aspect of visiting New Hampshire came when we were there for the primary, the presidential primary in 2020. Um, And just realizing how relentless that process is for people who actually live in the state. Um, Trying to find someone who was actually from New Hampshire became really difficult. Um, Seeing how media outlets just take over all of the places that should feel nice and relaxing for you and how difficult it is to avoid candidate signs. And it, you know, it really felt like so much pressure. Yeah, it is a little bizarre, the amount of uh, push-pulls that you get when you're an independent here. You get a lot of feedback and input from your audience. What are people writing about now? What are their concerns? Or is the level of concern possibly a bit lower than, you know, let's say a year or so ago? Right now, our audience is really consumed with sort of post-pandemic life, how to navigate vaccine conversations, uh, risk assessment, decisions as school returns in the fall or vacation opportunities present themselves, both as fully vaccinated people, people in their lives with vaccine hesitancy. So I would say like vaccines, vaccines and more vaccines is really what they're thinking about. And I do think on other topics, there is a more general trust in the decision making process at the federal level than we heard certainly during the previous four years, which is nice. But I also think our audience recognizes the tension that that doesn't mean we should tune out. Mm -hmm. And maybe everybody needs a breath and a pause, but then we need to get back in because something will come up that is really important for your community that requires your thought. And uh, it's it's a long game. It's not a come for the disaster and then leave when things seem to, to even out a little bit. That was Beth Silvers, and before her, Sarah Stewart-Holland, creators and co-hosts of Pantsuit Politics, and authors of the book, I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, which came out in 2019. And the forthcoming book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided, about basically everything. And Jillian, I think there are a lot of special elements at work with Pantsuit Politics. First, as you noted, there's that small-town warmth or as the Brits might say, conviviality. Yet with just a tiny bit of that magic Oprah dust. Secondly, there's obviously special chemistry between Sarah and Beth, who've been friends for years prior to launching the show. They do disagree, just not in the extreme way we expect a disagreement today. And third, in the respectful way they approach their listening community with those difficult conversations. Not to preach or convince, but to consider and discuss. We encourage all of our listeners to consider sampling and discussing a few of the many Pantsuit Politics episodes and look ahead to their forthcoming book. Beth and Sarah are a breath of fresh, grace-filled air in our toxic times. But next time on The Purple Principle, men, are we headed in the opposite direction? 
from down-home civility to foul-mouthed Hollywood satire, we'll be speaking with Veep showrunner and comedy writer extraordinaire David Mandel on his favorite Veep episodes and jokes. And on Veep's long-standing evasion of those most foul and toxic terms, Democrat and Republican. And of course, the painful decision, really painful to me, by the way, to wrap up this popular and award-grabbing Hollywood classic. The idea that we would have had a regular episode of Veep airing while I'm just making this up, like the insurrection was going on, our show wouldn't could have would have seemed like, well, why don't we just take the show these episodes and throw them in the garbage? Like there's no point in airing them. So on the one hand, you can't again, I, I hate to put it like this, you can't compete. Like your show just seems awful. We hope you'll listen to that episode. Look for our Patreon page coming soon. Connect with us via our website and social media, and stay indie-minded in these polarized times. This has been Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, producer. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Emily Holloway, digital strategy. Dom Scarlett and Grant Sherritt, research associates. Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production.